Well, have you ever wondered what uh, the song, The 12 Days of Christmas, is all about? It's a pretty bizarre song, and, and frankly, I'm not even sure if they still sing it. You know, on the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. Is, are they still, we still know that one? Okay, thank you. I'm sometimes behind on my cultural references. <laughs> but yeah, you know, think about that. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me. And then the second day of Christmas, it's, you know, what a, a two, two turtle doves, partridge in a pear tree. Third day, you know, it keeps going up. French hens, four calling birds, five golden rings, all up to 12 drummers drumming. And, and, and uh, there are plenty of theories on the internet. If you want to go searching as to what the, the, the meaning is behind all of that and uh, the symbolization, and I just, please take that with a massive grain of salt if you go on the internet, just in general, right? Right, right? But, but that's not why I'm bringing this song up. In our world today, Christmas kind of starts around Halloween, right? And, and then, you know, traditionally... The season of Christmas ran from December 25 to January 6, the 12 days of Christmas. And, and January 6 is the day of Epiphany. There were 12 days of Christmas in the traditional Christmas season. And I think that's really important for us to think about. And, you know, as it's become more and more of a secular holiday and more and more about, you know, a, a marketing time for us to, you know... Um, focus on other aspects, I think remembering this is really important and, and marking what the 12 days of Christmas song was really about was marking these 12 days between December 25 and January 6. And those 12 days are based on the period of time the, between the birth of Jesus, right, on uh, Christmas Day to the day the Magi came to witness the birth, and then they offered their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? I, I love the nativity so much, and, and I'm still kind of on this nativity high. And uh, this year, you know, we had kind of a, 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 a concern, I guess is the big term. Back in, uh, I don't know, summer we found out, the camels that we usually have had all died, um, and, and we were like, oh, no, where do you get camels, right? You know, I don't keep camels in the closet. And so we found some camels, and they came from, from Idaho, and they were actually, they were circus camels, and they were amazing. If you saw, how many people saw the nativity? How many people were in nativity? Yeah, yeah, probably more. And... Um, so, you know, they, they came, and they're amazing, and they're beautiful, and we're like, oh, my goodness, thank you for that. And then about the first, second day, we started hearing all these things that the camels could do, and one of them was you could ride them. And we had these, these wise men already, the Magi, and, you know, we we're kind of thinking, well, we could ride them or not. And so we finally, you know, talked one of our, our, our kings, our, our wise men, our Magi, into actually riding a camel. Uh, but then we found out that, well, we couldn't practice it because the more that you ride them, the, the, you know, they get kind of wiggy. And, uh, and so, the I think it was the second day or the third day. And so, we, we had not ridden the camels. And Ken Beekler, who is awesome, uh, we didn't think about this later. He was the only paramedic out there because he's actually a fireman. And so, he was on the, on the camel 
And he was, he was getting a little concerned because he hadn't practiced it until we actually ran the, the nativity. And we were talking right beforehand. And so, uh, you know, Scott Sanders is uh, one of our directors out there. He's kind of the outside director usually. And he, he actually wrote the script. does a phenomenal job. But so, so I told Ken, and Scott's standing there, and I was like, well, Ken, if you ride the camel and you have an awesome dismount, we're going to yell, way to go, Ken Beekler. And if you fall on your face, we're going to say, oh, Scott Sanders, are you okay? I was watching up in the stands, and, and when he came down around that hill, it was just amazing. And then he made this perfect dismount, and we're like, yeah! It was awesome. It was a wonderful moment. We make a big deal, obviously, about nativity and, and advent here and the season and experiencing the, the preparation season before Christmas. And, and that's... The four weeks before Christmas that precede Christmas, that is the preparation. That's the advent, waiting, preparing ourselves spiritually. And we don't really realize this, but in the Eastern tradition of Christianity, January 6th, Epiphany is actually a bigger deal than December 25. And I want to talk about that today and, and why. And so I want to join, uh, listen to a story from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and we've come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. Calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judah for... So it has been written by the prophet, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men, learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child, for when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also pay him homage." When they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that had been seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt, and they paid him homage, and opening up their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. There is so much going on in this story. And a couple years ago, I forgot how long ago, we actually based our living nativity on this story and the next story where King Herod actually kills all of the baby boys in the region in an effort to destroy the Christ child. And I got to do an extended series on that, and, and there's so much going on, and I, I'm, I'm going to have a lot of discipline and not give you the whole series this morning, although I want to, because it's a fascinating story. So Luke, the Gospel of Luke, he focuses on the humility of how God entered creation in this 
baby. And, 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 you know, on the night that Jesus was born, he was born, what, among the stock animals, and his manger was the stock animals' feeding trough. And Matthew has a very different focus. And we need both because they balance each other out. Matthew tells us at the same time Jerusalem rejected Jesus at the time of his birth, and yeah, that's a foreshadow of the passion, these Gentile magi, they not only traveled to welcome him, it says they came to pay the new king homage. And, and the Greek word literally says that they, they came to fall down and worship him. The, the word in the Greek, it's uh, proskuneo, which is, is like to prostrate yourself. So, like I say, Western Christianity has tended to focus on Luke's story of the humility of Jesus' birth when we come to Christmas. That's like the, the one that we always read, right? The Eastern tradition stresses Matthew's version of the story and the message of Epiphany. And this is the discovery of God's glory revealed in this royal child. And I think, like I said, they both balance out. We, we have the humility, we have the royalty. We have the deus, we have the homo, the God, the man. And we need them both, right? Jesus was human and divine. And the balance is everything. So Matthew, he, he juxtaposes Herod, who is this false, evil king, with the authentic, good king, Jesus. He's the real king of the Jews. And this first king, Herod, he seeks the life of the coming king. Why? Matthew says, Herod and all Jerusalem are frightened. But the Gentile magi, they seek him so that they can worship him, it says. I want to look at this story. So the first verse sets up the whole chapter. Three characters come on the scene. The first one, obviously, Jesus, God's son, the newborn king, God with us, Emmanuel, born with us, born to save the world, to be a light in the darkness. Then we have King Herod, who represents the power, the establishment and the, the religious leaders of the day, the church of the day. And then we have, like I say, the, the, the Magi. And they're as far from the Israelites as you can get. So this newborn king, he elicits two different responses, is the point, from two different groups. One responds with rebellion and the other with worship. And the irony is, it's God's people who are the ones who rebel. I, I think this is so important. And the Gentiles are the ones who seek to worship him. And we've heard this story, and we've reenacted this story so many times, we kind of miss the scandal that's going on here. And we romanticize the Magi, but they would not have been romanticized in Jesus' day because of their race and because of their profession. The Magi weren't Jews, first of all, right? They were Gentiles, already a strike. But the thing that makes the Magi so scandalous 
is not just their race, but professionally they're astrologers. They weren't kings until like centuries later. And most of what we think of when we think of the Magi, it actually came from art in the Middle Ages. But the Greek term that Matthew uses is is magos. And, And every single reference in the New Testament to magos, except for this one, is very negative. They were magicians. They were astrologers, which meant they looked to and they taught others to look to the stars, rather than God. So, they, to, to, to seek the created rather than the creator is the point. And they were idolaters. And Israel despised them. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, they were surrounded by astrologers. Remember the story? It was a huge part of the Egyptian worship back then. They were forced to stomach being led by astrologers when they were in Egypt enslaved. And so Yahweh delivered them from slavery. And Yahweh also delivered them from astrologers in the Exodus, if you read the, the, the story close. Those were still magos back then. So the Magos, they're outsiders, and they're the last people who should have been invited to the party for the new king's birth. And that's just the point. God led them to his son. And these outsiders, the unclean, the idolaters, the sinners, God still has a heart for them. So God called, they showed up, and they offer gifts and they prostrate themselves in worship to the new royal child. But the story of the Magi is the story of the wrong people who do things right, but Herod and Jerusalem, that's the story of the right people who do things wrong. Totally wrong. I mean, Matthew says the Magi, they come to Jerusalem which makes sense. They see this special star, and normally a special star back then signified an important birth, an important birth of a king. And so they go to Jerusalem. They think they're going to find the new baby king born in the city of kings. And they journey there, and they go up to the gates of the palace, and they say, hey, where's your new king? We saw his star, and we've come to worship him. Now, they must not really have thought about that much because you don't go to the existing king and say, hey, where's your new king? Especially with somebody like Herod. Herod was king of the Jews from 37 B.C. to about 4 A.D. And it was 40 years of bloody struggle. The man just, you know, spilled blood over and over and over to keep his throne. So the Magi, they go to Herod, and they ask him, where is this new king born of the Jews? And Matthew tells us the response, and I think it's just fascinating. When when King Herod heard this, he and all Jerusalem were frightened. I think this is so important. Herod wasn't the only one frightened. All Jerusalem with him. Matthew goes on to say, Herod calls together all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people. That's Jerusalem's leadership, right? 
And he inquires of them. He brings them in. Where is this Messiah to be born? And they actually quote Scripture to him. Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet, you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall come a ruler who is the shepherd, my people Israel. I hope we really get the irony here. These are the future enemies of Jesus. They eventually crucify him, but they begin by witnessing to the truth about who he is and what he has been called to do by quoting Scripture. How could they quote Scripture describing him as the newborn king and then try to destroy him? The reality is the birth of Jesus was a threat to life as they knew it. And they didn't want to change. Herod and Jerusalem, they liked the thing, way things were. They liked that they were in charge. People like Herod tend to do anything that they can to keep their position. And when it's threatened... He went so far as to kill all of the baby boys born in that region just to try to destroy Jesus. Why were they afraid of a baby? I think it was because they did turn to the Scriptures and they saw. They had to come to grips with what Jesus was born to do, what He was there to do. And they were reminded of God's desire for things. And they realized how far they had gotten from God's desire and how much they stood to lose if God's desire actually occurred. People in charge, they didn't want to look out the window and and see what the lives of people under them were like. And they certainly didn't want to look in the mirror and see who they had become, what power had done to them. They didn't want anything to change. And they knew what this baby was born to do. So King Herod was afraid. And all Jerusalem with him. The Greek word translated as afraid, it has a whole lot of nuances. It realms from Herod was excited, but not in a good excitement. Dismayed, agitated for sure, bewildered, and overcome. I mean, confusion, anguish, they were just shattered. Why would they be shattered? Because Jesus reorients us away from our self-interest, and he focuses us on the needs of others. Jesus forces us to deal with the reality of our own self-interest and, frankly, our lack of concern about others. And I think from that first Christmas with that baby Jesus all the way to today, if we take this seriously, All Jerusalem's going to be afraid. 
Herod, the priests, the scribes, the leaders of the day, they knew who Jesus was from day one. He was their king. He was their Lord. He was their Messiah. But they try to destroy him in order to stop him from being king. They didn't want him to lead. They liked the way things were. And I think we need to remember Herod and his clan. You know, they were the church people of the day. They were the right people, but they were doing the wrong things and they knew it. This is how the deceiver works. He plays with our greatest weakness, and that's our self-interest, right? Sure, I want to help others as long as it doesn't cost me anything. I don't want to admit it, but I'm the most important one. I'm the king of my life, and there's only room for one king on the throne. And you can point your finger at Herod and Jerusalem all you want, but the, this is human nature, right? And so often, the wrong people do the right thing, and the right people do the wrong thing. You know, Herod, he didn't want to turn his throne over to Jesus. The church leaders, they didn't want to resign their positions at all. And the further and further they went away from God's desire, the uglier things get in this story. When we're confronted with Jesus, we, we, we're forced to look inside. Even if it's just for a brief moment, enough for you to make a choice, do we stay, do we deal with what we find, or do we step aside? I'm king. It's my life. I rule my life. I rule my heart. Edward Skilabeeks wrote, I just think this, this hit me. Jesus discloses human beings to themselves and reveals their consciences so that they either put up opposition or retreat. So the magi, the wrong people, they were confronted with Christ, and what did they do? They, they kneel in worship. But the church people, the right people, the religious people, they had too much to lose. And they couldn't give it up. There's only one room for one king. The cost of turning over the throne was too great. They had too much to lose. So what does epiphany mean? Epiphany is like an experience of just an, a sudden, you know, striking insight. It's a moment of revelation. And Herod and Jerusalem, they had an epiphany. And they were frightened at what they saw. Because Jesus is like a mirror. The closer you get, the clearer, the deeper you're able to see into your very soul. And you see how far you're called to journey 
if you're going to follow him and if he's going to be your king. And so they sought to destroy the new king. But the Gentiles worshipped him. You know, I think as we begin the new year, I, I want to ask you, just bathe this in prayer. There's only room for one king. Who's the king of your life? I mean, to profess Jesus as king, a lot of people do this. But following him is going to cost something. And it's going to cost us our own throne, our own crown. It's going to cost giving up the kingdom of our own making. And, and there's going to be other costs associated with this new king's inauguration. Are we willing to pay the price? Wise men still know the path to choose. We pray that this is a season of epiphany. And like I say, as we begin this new sermon series on the Beatitudes, I pray that we can allow Jesus' words to be a mirror. And as we see a deficit and how far we have to go, realize that we are a people of grace. And it's okay. And what we can't do, the Spirit will do for us and with us and in us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this season as we continue to journey in the midst of birth in the midst of hope, in the midst of the possibilities of a new year. We ask an epiphany, a realization. We ask that we might see as you see and that we look into our very self, our deepest truest self. And that we might offer a place for you to be king. In your son's name we pray. Amen.